Welcome to the OKC Community Podcast. We are so glad you're here. To get the latest updates or to watch this week's message, visit our website at okccommunitychurch.com. Pray for BBS. Well, today, my friends, I actually want to jump in to uh, our parables teaching series again. Like we took a couple weeks off from it, but much of this summer we have been journeying through and spending a lot of time in the parables of Jesus. And in the scriptures, Jesus gave about 30 different parables, um, and we are just touching on a few of them through the summer. Uh, but I will say this. Just as a reminder, we touched on pretty much all of them in our devotional series. I don't know if you've been reading those devotionals. We've created 31 devotionals online through the parables for you to do uh, on your own. I know some of you are already done with them, right? You've done all 31, right? Right, 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 right. Yeah, 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 yeah. If you haven't, I'm reminding you. If you have, awesome. Uh, but I just want to say, like, I love what they're about, not only because they're about the parables, but we have 30 original, 31 devotionals written by people in this church. And what a great way to experience uh, the family and the body of Christ than by kind of sharing the word together through that, through that way. And this year alone in 2023, through our Fire in Our Hearts devotional series, through 10 Days of Prayer, through this parables, we've written over 100 original devotionals here connected to those things just in 2023 alone. And so when we started the year with that encouragement to read the Bible and pray. You guys remember that? Read the Bible and pray. Read the Bible and pray. Read the Bible and pray. We are trying to do all we can to help you do that, to get into that daily routine of saying, God, this day is yours. I surrender it to you. I'm going to go to your word. I'm going I'm to let it speak to my heart. I'm going to pray. I'm going to be a And so we have these hundred devotions. Go to our app. This is not an announcement. This is a vision. Are you all right? Are you with me? We're not talking announcements here. We're talking about vision for your life, that you can read the Bible, you can pray. We don't write devotionals. We don't ask you to write devotionals. So they sit in digital space for no reason, but for the purpose of building up the body of Christ. So I just want to remind us of that. We're only touching on seven parables in the teachings, but we, are touched, we touched on most of them, if not all of them, in the devotional. So I encourage you to get in that and read the Bible in. Read the Bible in. There you go. All right. So we're going to be finishing our series today from the book of Luke, chapter 18. If you want to get your Bibles, go to Luke 18. That's where we're going to be today. Are you all ready to get into the Word? Yeah. A few of you are. This is going to be amazing for you three. It's Luke 18, starting in verse number 9. Let's get it. Here we go. To some of you who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Don't you know when Jesus is like, I got a parable for you, you probably just either said something or did something stupid. He's like, oh, yeah, 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 I got a parable. Remember a few weeks ago, the guy wants to justify himself. He says, oh, yeah, Jesus, who's my neighbor? He's like, I got a parable for you. Next time your friend does something stupid, says something stupid, you can say, I got a parable for you. Just make sure you have a parable or you'll be the one looking dumb. Right? Right? All right. So... Some of you, uh, excuse me, this particular parable, Jesus is about to be speaking, of course, to people who are confident in their own righteousness. They look down on other people. I know none of you know anyone like that, right? But before you point your finger, what's the saying? The three fingers point back at you, whatever that cheesy saying is. It's true, though. Verse 10, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Everyone say Pharisee. 
So a number of years ago, I did a little bit of a deep dive on to better understand the roles and presence of religious leaders and Pharisees in the stories of Jesus. Because if you've ever read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, the Gospels of Jesus, you certainly notice the consistent and heavy presence of the religious leaders and Pharisees. They are really important figures, not only in the story of Christ, but they have a lot of critical meaning to what Jesus came to do. And here we are 20 centuries later and these, of when these stories took place. And I'm sure you, if you've ever read the Bible much, you have a mental image of what these Pharisees and religious leaders probably looked like, how they acted. Probably something like this. I have a painting to kind of show you. Kind of grumpy old men, right? They're like grumpy old men overdressed for the weather. It's probably why they're mad all the time because they're hot. I get angry when I'm hot. Anybody with me? And so they probably are just overdressed. But these verses we read in the scriptures about the Pharisees, they paint a picture for us, don't they? And I'll just read a few of them. They're not going to be on screen, but just real quick. Matthew 12, 14. But the other Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. How many of you know knowing that about the Pharisees starts to shape our, our view of them, right? Matthew 16, 21. Jesus explained, I must go and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and religious leaders, i.e. the Pharisees. Matthew 16, 6, Jesus said to them, be on guard against the yeast of the Pharisees. Whatever they're doing, be on guard. Matthew 22, 15, then the Pharisees went out and laid a plan to trap Jesus in his words. Matthew 23, 13, Jesus said, woe to you teachers of the law and Pharisees, you brood of vipers. How do you know, how many know that Jesus was calling people snakes before we called them snakes? You know what I mean? He's like, you're a snake. Snake in the grass. Matthew 27, 20, the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to have Jesus executed. We have shaped a mental view of the Pharisees based upon the story that we read. I go on and on. These are just a small fraction of the things that are said about the Pharisees, religious leaders, and their actions and their attitudes. And there is a clear disconnect between what Jesus came to do, what he was coming to say, what he was coming to, to bring, and what the religious leaders were trying to protect and what they were trying to do as well. And this story plays out, and Jesus comes to bring change. I want to show you another painting, this, the, the painting of a group of people called the rabbis. Now, the rabbis have a little bit more of a positive, if you will, rep in our culture today. In first century Israel, the religious culture was led and pastored, really pastored is probably the best word, by rabbis. Jesus, of course, became a rabbi, if you know his story. And becoming a rabbi in first century Israel was not an easy task. It was really hard. There was a long process of being discipled into a rabbi, to become a disciple of a rabbi, an individual would have had to been considered the brightest in the class of students, right? He would have won, for example, the Bible trivia challenge when he was a kid, probably slept in his yarmulke. I mean, he was devout, right? Like he ate and drank and slept, and he, he was all about the Torah all the time, right? And before you become a rabbi, you get chosen out of a class of students to become a disciple of a rabbi, and if you're chosen to be a disciple of a rabbi, you've been accepted into an Ivy League school, right? You, you are, your family would be honored because everyone knew that a disciple of the rabbi was not only bright and smart, but committed, devout, and godly. So disciples grow up to become rabbis, but rabbis grow up to become Pharisees. Are you all with me? Pharisees were the leaders of the religious teachings of the day. And in essence, they were respected 
and honored among the people. Sure, someone might have felt the, the air of an angry uh, Pharisee at times, but they were really respected because they were the teachers of the most cherished thing in life, the Torah, which, by the way, was called the way, the truth, and the life. Before Jesus ever said it, they were saying it about the word of God. And so we think of Pharisees as grumpy old men. But in ancient Israel, the thought of a Pharisee was a respected man of God. And this gives us a a different picture of what people would be hearing when Jesus is about to drop this parable on them. Because as we enter this text today, we have to enter into the world, if you will, for just a moment of ancient Israel. I don't want to stay in ancient Israel because we don't live there. But we can learn from it and put it into our world. So what was Jesus up to? Because, again, the crowd saw Pharisees differently than you and I see them. So let's read this. Luke 18. We'll go start again in verse 9, but I'll read all the way down to 14, the entire parable. He says, To some who are confident in their own, confident in their own righteousness and look down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. He said, Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. If you know much about the word, tax collectors are another interesting character in the story of Jesus. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed. Again, this is a parable. God, I thank you that I am not like the other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, and even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance, meaning he wouldn't even go all the way into the temple. You all with me? He stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Now, as a reminder, we need to consider why did Jesus speak in parables? We just have to touch on this. Why was he speaking in parables? Would Jesus explain this? To his disciples, he says, I speak in parables because they, they contain in them the truths of the kingdom of God. And he said, those who want to hear the truths of the kingdom of God will understand my parables. But those who don't want to hear the truths of the kingdom of God because they think they've already got it figured out or they only, they only want to know about their kingdom, they will not understand my parables. So he says, blessed be those who hear my words. Because they will, and he says, blessed do those, they will have eyes to see and ears to hear. So he goes on to say, whoever has ears, let them hear. Whoever has ears, let them hear. So what are we supposed to hear in this particular parable? Well, I imagine if you're like me, the first reaction I've had to this parable, and I thought about for many years, is I think, man, this Pharisee's prayer is ridiculous. This dude is a class A jerk. But I want to pause on this for a moment. Because through our negative lens in 21st century America that we see Pharisees through, my assumption is this guy is a class A jerk. But what is the assumption of an Israelite, a first century Jew? That is a devout man of God. Godly, first in his class. So let's pay attention to what he actually says. You can go back to the scripture. He says, he he starts, you'll see bolded there, he says, he starts to thank God. That's where he starts, which is a great place to begin a prayer. He thanks God, and he gives credit to God for what he saw as a good thing going on in his life. He says, thank you that I'm not evil. 
Thank you that I don't steal from people. Thank you, God, for whatever reason you've put in me like a heart that wants to pursue you. In some ways, this is not that crazy of a prayer. In some ways, we may pray similar things, maybe not for ourselves, but maybe for our children. Lord, I just pray you protect them from evil. I pray that they don't become liars or, or, or thieves. I, I, pray, I mean, we might pray these things, maybe not in these exact words, but with the same sentiment. Hmm. So he prays that. And then he prays next. He says, he says, God, I fast and I give. In fact, the guy says, guy does it at a high level. It was very customary, inspected in Jewish culture to fast once per week. But how many times does this guy do it? He does it twice per week, right? And that's really an incredible thing. He was devout and committed to honoring God and making him the center of everything. Then he says, I give a tenth of everything I get, everything I earn, not just money. So some of us, you know, we've heard that before, like tithe, 10%, whatever. And we, we struggle to get there as if it's the finish line, but it's really just the starting line, by the way. But, but he, says, he says, listen, I, I struggle. I mean, I don't even struggle with that. I give a tenth of everything I get. So he gets a bunch of grapes off a vineyard. He's like, I got to give a tenth of that to the Lord. You know, whatever it is, it's not just money, it's everything. So this guy is going above and beyond. The people listening to this are thinking, yeah, that dude's pretty, pretty great. He's a good man. He's devout. He's committed to the Lord. He's spiritually committed. He's top of his class. So the Pharisee's prayer does not startle the people listening the way it startles us. When we read it, we are bothered by his words of thanking God that he's not like people who do evil. But that's not what startles the first century Jews who were listening to Jesus. It's the next part of what Jesus says that changes everything. Jesus, of course, goes on and he uses the example of a tax collector. Likely the most hated person in Jewish culture. Many of you have heard this before, but Romans would hire Jews to become tax collectors, to collect taxes for Rome from their, from their countrymen, other Jews. And so Jewish people saw anybody that would take that job as a traitor. They were hated. Verse 13, this is what it says. But the tax collector, he stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. So you know what startled first century Jews listening to Jesus tell this parable? This one word, justified. This one word blew their mind. Jesus said the Pharisee was not justified, but the tax collector was. Now, the theological definition of justification is the action by, making right, by, by, by me being made righteous in the sight of God. So how, how am I justified to enter into the presence of God, enter into his kingdom, enter into heaven, right? Have you been made new, clean, holy, righteous? Theologically, we must be justified of our sin meaning we've done wrong and there needs to be some sort of justification that allows us to be made right. This allows us to be in right standing with God. So Jesus said the Pharisee was not justified, but the tax collector was. The listening crowd is like, no, 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 no. That's not right, Jesus. That's not how it works. The Pharisee was devout his whole life. He grew up dreaming of becoming a rabbi while all his friends were out doing cannonballs in the Sea of Galilee. He was at home studying the Torah. Like this dude had went all in. 
Jesus, if the Pharisee is not justified, none of us can be. That's what they're thinking. If the Pharisee can't do it, we're all doomed. This would have crumbled their whole paradigm of what it means to be a devout person of God. It was hard to hear and to understand. Do you see why Jesus is saying, my parables release the keys to the kingdom. They are the secrets to the kingdom. Those who want to hear, they will be blessed. It was hard for them but because this was, this was different news, but I would say it was good news, very, very good news. He says, whoever has ears, let them hear. They were hearing for the first time that you cannot justify yourself by being good. Only God can justify you. It is not by your righteousness, but only the righteousness of Christ Jesus. This is the first time they heard this. You can't justify yourself before me. Not even if, even if God protects you from evil. Not even if you give and you fast and you are a devout spiritual leader. That will not justify you. Maybe this isn't new to you, but this is the gospel good news. That doesn't justify you. You know, when I first, when I first started working in ministry back in the late 90s, <laughs> before the turn of the century, you know. <laughs> you know the days of Saved by the Bell and NSYNC and yeah. Michael Jordan, the GOAT. Any other 90s fans? 90s? What are you guys, 2,000 fans, the rest of you? Man, 2,000s. Back in those days, I got to tell you a little bit about church ministry, okay? Back in those days, there was an evangelistic tactic that had been used for a while. If you were going to ask a question to someone who maybe didn't know Jesus and you were trying to lead them to Christ, you might ask this question. Some of you remember this question. The question was this. It was like classic. If you died tonight in a freak accident, do you know where you'd spend eternity, heaven or hell? Listen, man, that's a deep question, right? Like we hear that and we're like, questions today are a little different. We take a little bit more like relational trust building before we maybe get to that question. But, you know, it was straight out of the gate. You know, if you died tonight in a freak accident, man, today we do a little different tactic. We aren't trying to scare the hell out of people, although it's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing to sometimes think that way. Sometimes people need it. But the he- for the heck of it this morning, can we apply that question to the tax collector and the Pharisee? You guys want to do this? It's going to be fun. All right. Let's pretend the Pharisee and the tax collector die in a freak accident. They're walking home and a rogue chariot goes off the road. It was a big one, like an SUV of chariots. It had three rows. Bam. Dead. Both of them. All right. So they're both in front of God. Day of judgment. The Pharisee walks in and God says, now why should I let you into my kingdom? And the response of the Pharisee is something like this. He says, God, you should let me into your heaven because I was not a thief. Because I was not a tax collector. I was not a liar. I listened to K-Love radio. I ate Chick-fil-A all the time. I, I mean... <laughs> Why would you not, Lord? I was a good person. I tithed. I fasted like a lot. You should let me into your heaven because I did all of this for you. I went above and beyond for you, God. The problem with what the Pharisee's uh, thinking is, is that he thought that spiritual commitment would justify him. He thought that his acts of dedication and learning and commitment gave him right standing before God. 
But God looks at the Pharisee in that moment and says, "Mm -mm, that's not the way this works. So the tax collector who died in the freak accident, he has to be dragged in. Because remember, he was standing at a distance in the temple. There's no way he's going in the throne room of God. So two angels are like dragging in the tax collector. You know what I mean? They're dragging him in, and then they stand him up, and he can't even stand up. He stays laying on the floor. And they're like, he says finally to the guy, he says, why should I let you in to my kingdom? And he says, you shouldn't, Lord. You shouldn't let me in. I don't deserve to be in here. I'm not worthy to be in here. You don't need to let me in. But if there's only one way that I can get in, it's only by your mercy. It's only by your love. That's the only way I'm getting into your kingdom. There's no other way. And then, and then, and then God says, you know what? Justified. Come on in. Justified. Come on in. So listen, listen. Like The mantra and the hope of every follower of Jesus is one thing. Christ alone. It's by Christ alone. That has to be the heart of every Jesus follower. If we feel justified and in right standing because of what we do, we are falling for the same trap that the Pharisees did. And you think, well, I already figured this out, Sam. I'm not talking about just the moment in which you said, I know I can't do it. I need Jesus. I'm talking about your life every day in which you understand you are not worthy of the salvation that you have received, but you are only justified by Christ alone. It is Christ alone that gives you life. It is not the things of this world. It is not money. It is not pursuit of your dream or your jobs. Those are not the things that give life and give eternity and give purpose. It is Christ alone. Are y'all with me? Do you, remember, do you remember what John the Baptist said? John the Baptist said, hey, there is one who is coming whose, whose sandals I am unworthy to even untie. Like he's like, listen, I can't even stoop down and like unlace his sandals. That's how great Jesus is. Have you ever felt truly unworthy? Let's take it out of the faith context for a minute. You ever felt unworthy of a gift you've received? I was thinking about this. Have you ever been rude to someone and then they return your rude with, with kindness? You really deserve rudeness, but you got something undeserved. Or think about this. Have you ever been walking along the street and there's a $20 bill and you're like, ooh. You pick up that 20, you look around, you're like, no one's here. I guess it's mine. We found a $20 bill in our front yard last year. Addie picked it up. I said, hey, uh, I'm the owner of this property, owner's rights. <laughs> She kept it anyway. Listen. (laughs) Listen, sometimes you are not worthy of what you receive. In fact, I would go as far as to say your life is truly an undeserved gift. Anyone agree with that? And the scriptures show us time and time again that we are only made right, only counted worthy through the love and the grace of Jesus. Today and every day, our cry must be Christ alone. It's Christ alone that not only justifies you, it's Christ alone that protects you, it's Christ alone that provides for you, it's Christ alone that holds everything in your life together, it's Christ alone that you can depend on, it's Christ alone that deserves all the credit and the glory, it's Christ alone that has the power for the battle you are facing right now, it's Christ alone that will set you free of the addiction, it's Christ alone that will give you life and purpose for your future, it's Christ alone that does everything. He is everything about everything. Listen, listen. 
It goes like this. It's called Solo Cristo. You got to roll that R. Everyone say Solo Cristo. It's just the Latin word for Christ alone. But listen, listen, this was one of the five defining characteristics of the Protestant Reformation. The basic belief that salvation is obtained only through the atoning work of Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the core of what it means to call Jesus Lord of your life. That you understand you can do nothing to save yourself. It's all been done by Christ. Jesus comes to take the weight off of people. Mm. Jesus come and said, you can stop striving. Anyone feel like they're striving in life? You can quit relying on self-works and self-righteousness and achievement, but instead, so many of us have grown up living Thinking we have to achieve more. Take this out of even just our relationship with Jesus. We are trying to feel worthy in life by pleasing other people, by achieving some sort of status, trying to earn respect or favor so that we can feel worthy. But that endeavor never works. It's empty. Because you and I, we have to say my righteousness, justification, salvation, and freedom and confidence is only found in Christ alone. Jesus said, you don't have to strive with me. I've already done the work. It's by faith you've been saved, not by works that any man should boast. He's not saying don't care, don't try. He's saying don't do good. Th-. He's not saying don't do good things. He's not saying what, how you live doesn't matter. He's saying you need to understand, though, no matter how you live, you can never do enough. Life is about trusting in him and surrendering to his good work and giving all control to him. And this is a great challenge in life because we live, we live in a world of comparison. Let me explain. By the way, comparison is not a new thing just because we have social media now and compare our lives to one another through these little apps that we have on our phones. Comparison has been around forever. <laughs> Obviously, right here in the scriptures, In this parable, you see the Pharisee praying and feeling justified in how he compares to others. Whoa, right? I wonder how many of us base our commitment to Jesus based on comparison to others. We feel good or bad in relationship to how we compare. So if we're doing good, we're doing what seemingly all the other, quote, good Christians do, we check that religious box and say, justified, doing my job, doing what I'm supposed to do. As if how we live in comparison to others is what answers that question. We're exceeding what other people do. I go to church more than them. I don't know if you know this, but I read my Bible every day. Have you seen them? It's kind of embarrassing. And you feel good about yourself. We feel better about ourselves or we feel worse about ourselves because we're not measuring up. We beat ourselves up because we're not living up to the standards that maybe we think other people wear. Comparison is a weird thing. It can defeat us. It can make us feel less than or it can falsely justify the decisions we're making in life because we feel better than others. Our comparison even leads us, right? The decisions we're making are based in, well, they're doing that. Maybe I should do that too. So comparison leads our decision making. 
Think about all the ways you live in comparison to others and you find your satisfaction and your peace in comparison. I'm just speaking into this today because we have to stop this insanity. Right? Like it is crazy because we aren't better than them, but we aren't worse than them. And it's not even about them. We are all equally in need of Jesus. And without him, we are missing everything. Everyone say everything. Everything. Say it again. Everyone say everything. everything. About six or seven years ago, there was a film called The Theory of Everything. Anybody remember this movie? Raise your hand. That's what I thought. Won a couple Oscars, but nobody watched it. The way it goes with Oscar-winning films. Um, I kind of like this movie, though. It was about a guy named the physicist Stephen Hawking. And a lot of you know who that is. He died about five years ago, but a well-renowned physicist. And he, he had a belief that there was one simple physiological equation that explains everything about life. One equation that explains everything about how the world works, where it came to, how it came to be. And Hawking worked his entire life on what he called the theory of everything. And, and he was an atheist. And so he felt like there was a way to explain the universe, the cosmos, through scientific explanation. And he searched physics, and, and it certainly has plenty of science, because I don't know if you know this, but God created the science. But um, he searched physics, astronomy, astronomy, the ends of human intelligence, and he never found that simple equation that actually solves and resulted in the completion of his theory of everything. And I'm watching this movie, and I'm thinking, he's looking for Jesus. Like, this is kind of crazy. He's looking for Jesus. Which, by the way, his, his first wife found Jesus, and then Stephen Hawking rejected Jesus. And there's a theory. So there's this theory of everything that explains everything. And it is found in one place, right? Too many, it sounds foolish. You ever heard 1 Corinthians 1.18? To the wise, the gospel of Jesus is foolish. To, to many, it's foolish. But Jesus, when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, which, by the way, is an echo of the Torah, he says, I am the theory to everything. Jesus is everything. Here's the thing. We can so easily be distracted from Jesus being the center of our life. We make ourselves the center. We make some endeavor or goal or job the center of our life. But ultimately, we always know this in the back of our mind when we know Christ. We are nothing without him. Consider for a moment the Apostle Paul. If you've read the Bible, you know that Paul wrote a considerable amount of the New Testament. But before he was converted to Christ, he was the Pharisee of all Pharisees. You guys remember that, right? He was a Pharisee, which means he was number one in his class. He was the devout guy that ate the Torah for breakfast. He was in all the way. He was, he was the Pharisee in this prayer, probably praying in the temple the way this Pharisee we just read about prays. But all of a sudden, in an instant in Paul's life, on the road to Damascus, he's met by Jesus Christ, and it changes his life. And he says later, when he's writing a letter to the Philippian church, he says some powerful words in Philippians 3.8. He says, what is more, I consider everything a loss. I love this verse compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider it all garbage that I may gain Christ 
That's verse 8. You skip down to verse 13. He says, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Man, to win Christ. He's counted everything else as loss. Everything else is secondary. Christ was his focus, right? Christ alone. Solo Cristo. So when you look at the Pharisees and the religious leaders and the important and the prominent role they play in the Gospels, it's largely because of this. They represent what people do. This is what we do. I hate to break it to you. The reason this parable matters is not so we can build our image of Pharisees to go bad, ugly, angry guys. It's to build our understanding of this is what I do. I'm the Pharisee. And I'm the tax collector. I'm both. This is what we do. The tension we create in the wrong posture and paths we get on. We get a hold of faith, we place our beliefs in Jesus, and then we try and control it instead of surrender to it. We try and make Jesus the object of our, worship, of our work instead of the object of our worship. That was a good point. I don't know if you caught it. We compare our spirituality to others so we can justify ourselves. Pharisees represent something in the scripture that we can all do. We can make Jesus into a religion. We will exalt ourselves over God. We compare ourselves to others to justify the decisions we make and the life we live. We try and check religious boxes that we feel are necessary instead of just surrendering our entire life to Jesus. Jesus knew what it would take to flip and turn a religious works-based culture on its head. He knew that he had to make an example of the worst of the worst, which is what happened, right? This is why he chose the tax collector. This is why he used the tax collector as his example in this story. It's why he chose Matthew, a tax collector, to be one of his disciples. It's why he looked at Zacchaeus, a tax collector, and said, can I come to your house? Perhaps people would start to see that Jesus actually came to bring good news, the good news that any of us, no matter what, can be justified before God. Any of us can be justified. Every person, even that person you don't think deserves it, just remember you don't deserve it either. By the work and grace of Jesus, we are made righteous. <laughs> we don't go and do the things of Jesus to prove anything. You understand that? Like when we, when we call you up in your faith here, when we call you to read the Bible and to pray, when we say, hey, let's roll our sleeves up together and serve the city, let's love the city, let's be a church that does things that matter. When we say those things, we aren't trying to prove anything. We aren't saying this will make you, this will make you feel better about your faith. No, 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 no. Listen, we worship because we want to. We go to church because we want to. Not to justify ourselves, and I'm surprised can I just say this? Can I just go on a little rant? I'm surprised by how many Christians don't want to come to church. Kind of blows my mind, 
hurts my brain. What do you mean you don't want to come to church? What do you mean it's inconvenient? What do you mean? What do you mean you can't show up for two hours a week to be with God's people? What are you talking about you don't need the church to be a a believer? What are you talking about? Give me a physical break. (laughs) Like literally break my arm right now because that's so stupid. We come to church because we want to. (laughs) That sounds angry. I'm not angry, but what I'm passionate about is like, we got to figure this out. We don't do things for Jesus to justify ourselves. We do things for Jesus because we want to. We worship because we want to. We serve because we want to. We roll our, we give because we want to. We come together because we want to. You see, what it means to be justified by Christ is that he has given us everything we need and therefore that transforms us to be a group of people who want to. But I don't know if all Christians want to. And that's what hurts my brain. Because I'm like, have you really experienced the love and the mercy and the grace of Jesus in your life? Because if you have, you'd want to. Because you aren't worthy of what you've been given. We are unworthy of the gift of Jesus. Yet he gave it to us anyway. Out of his love, out of his mercy, out of his grace. Do you understand all I'm preaching to you today is the gospel? This is the gospel and the good news of Jesus. He came to set people free. He said, come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And when he says that, he's not like, hey, I'm going to give you a weekend off. I'm going to help you feel a little bit better about your body and your, your, mental, your mental health. That's not what he's talking about. Enter into my rest is what Jesus is saying. He's saying, come, I'm going to give you something you don't even understand, and it's the life you've always wanted. I've been gone for seven weeks almost. It's Jesus alone, Christ alone that we surrender to. Solo Cristo, we don't surrender the world. We don't surrender to money. We don't surrender to comparison. We don't surrender to success. It's Christ alone. It's Jesus alone. He's done everything for us to save us. He justifies us before our holy God. He told us what we need to know, and he showed us who we need to be. Woo. He told us what we need to know, and he showed us who we need to be. Whoever has ears, let them hear. This is the good news of Jesus, and we can't hear it enough. Listen, I don't know how this word affects you, but here's how it affects me. Because I'm like, oh, man, I've heard this before. I know justification. I get it. I get all that. Like, I've heard this before. But what I was, I was struck by was this, is that every day of my life, I have to keep surrendering to Jesus. Like, listen, there's never a moment, I have a, I have a to-do list, right? And sometimes I get a really great satisfaction when I check the box and it strikes through my, my to-do list. You know what I'm talking about? If you do that or you just cross it out, we never get to, to strike through surrender. Because here's why. Like, just like there's more of Jesus every day of the rest of your life, there's more to surrender. Until I come face-to-face and enter into the kingdom of God and I am made whole in Christ... I have more, I have more to understand about what it means to live under the lordship of Jesus in my life. I'm not striving to earn something. I've already been given it. I'm, I'm, I'm going, I'm, I'm pressing on towards the goal because I want to. I know, I know you know this, but some of you, this is the first time that it's all clicking. Oh. I've been, I've been chasing Jesus as a religion. I've been chasing Jesus as an answer man, as a happy pill. 
Jesus is not those things. He is a savior, a king. He is a friend. He is he's the one who will radically change your life. Jesus is not the, the, the answer to your problem if you don't understand that the problem's root is that we are broken and in need and nothing can fix it but Jesus. Listen. Whoever has ears, let them hear. I'll close with this. Romans 3, 23 and 24. This is like, this is like, you know when a pitcher is like about to throw a basketball, the batter is expecting, I, I'm not even a baseball guy and I'm making this illustration up on the spot, so good, follow me. You're expecting a fastball, I mean a, a curveball, sorry. See, this is a struggle. Um, you're expecting a curveball, but he throws you a fastball. And in baseball terminology, if I remember all the way back to when I was like 12 years old and played baseball, that's called meat. Oh, he just served it up for me. Because it's an, like a fastball that's not that fast, that's what you knock out of the park. Do you understand Romans 3.23 is just meat. It's just a fastball for us to go, ah, I get it. It says this, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. None of us are worthy. And are, all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Can I get an amen? Amen, amen, amen. amen. Let's pray together, all right? Would you bow? In fact, why don't you stand? I'm going to pray for us. Stand up. We're going to pray together. Just invite right now the Holy Spirit to just move in this room. Holy Spirit, would you come? Would you move? Would you do your thing? Would you, would you move in people's hearts? We are open to what you want to do in us today. I want to invite... I actually want to make a really clear invitation to anyone in this room that needs to accept Christ as their Savior, to invite Jesus into your life. Because when Jesus came and he gave this message, it was, a, it was full of the truths of the kingdom of God, but it was, it was coupled with an invitation to come and follow him, to follow his ways, to follow his teachings. And we've been giving that same invitation for centuries as the church. Jesus says, come and follow me. Make me the Lord of your life. Quit trusting in the ways of of the world, stop following people and empty promises. Instead, he says, come to me, who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. So I invite anyone in the room right now that wants to give their life to Jesus to do that. Like, listen, whenever we do this, I'm going to lead you in a moment of prayer. There's a lot of ways to surrender to Jesus. One of the ways that we as the church have learned is helpful is to just say a prayer of surrender. This isn't in the Bible. This isn't, you know, you have to do it this way. But this is the way that we lead people to do it often, is to just give a prayer of surrender. And I help people do that all the time in moments like this, where we just say a prayer something like this. We just say, Jesus, I give you my life. So if today you want to do that, if you want to receive Christ, if you want to say, Lord, you're the, Jesus, you are Lord of my life. It says in the Bible that all who would confess that Jesus is Lord and believe that, that God raised him from the dead will be saved. And so in this moment, if you're there, I'm like, I, that's me. And I need to give my life to Jesus. Here's what we do. We just say, Jesus, I give you my life. And in fact, right now, where you're standing, if you're ready to receive Christ, I want you to pray this prayer with me. Just repeat after me. Say, Jesus, I give you my life. Pray it. It's Christ alone. Say, Jesus, I give you my life. Say it with everything you got. Say it one more time. Say, Jesus, I give you my life. The next line I want you to pray. He says, all, we need to confess that he is Lord. So I want you to just say, I confess, Jesus, that you are Lord. 
I confess, Jesus, that you are Lord. Jesus, I give you my life. I confess, Jesus, that you are Lord. Will you forgive me? Pray this. Please forgive me of my sin. Please forgive me of my sin. When he forgives you, that's your justification. Please forgive me of my sin. And then the last thing we can say, thank you, God, for saving me, justifying me, and loving me. Thank you, God, for saving me, justifying me, and loving me. I just want to pray for anybody who prayed that prayer. I always, I, I like to do this occasionally because I feel like a step of courage is a prayer we prayed this morning. A step of courage is always good in these moments. But if you, if you prayed that prayer today, I always want to say a prayer for you. Everybody's heads are bowed. You can just lift your hand right now. Just lift your hand as I count to one, two, three. Lift your hand up over the room if you prayed that prayer up in the balcony down here. Just lift it up real quick so I can say a prayer over those who lift their hands up. I see you. I see several of you. I love it. So awesome. Jesus loves you. He cares for you. Holy Spirit, I just pray right now for every person that's lifting their hand. Would you just seal this moment? May it be the moment of all moments for them in which they know you came in and you took over and took residence in their life. I pray right now that just like a seed planted in good soil will sprout up life, would this seed of the gospel be planted in their heart and will it produce life in the name of Jesus. Everybody's head still bowed. For those of you who already know Christ, who already follow Jesus, I want to encourage you with something before we, before we worship. We're going to worship for about five more minutes, and we're going to pray, and we're going to respond. But here's what I want to encourage you with. A lot of you right now, you have, you have been reminded today of the good news and the gospel of Jesus, and you are already thinking, man, I'm so thankful for my salvation. If today you need to just give God thanks for your salvation, do it. If you need to repent to say, God, I'm sorry that sometimes I didn't want to, and I, and I know now I do want to. I want to give you, all, give you my all. I want, it to be, I want it to be Christ alone in my life. If you need to repent today, if you need to worship today, if you need to respond today, if you're filled right now with questions or challenges in your life and you just need prayer today, we have a prayer team that can do ministry with you today, but we're going for it today. We're leaning in because remember, we're going to build the fire in our hearts. No cast outs, tap outs, or burnouts in the name of Jesus. Lord, we give you this time in your name. Amen. This altar's open. Let's spend a few more minutes today. No hurry, no rushing. Rest in this moment. Respond to him. We hope you've enjoyed this week's message. If there's anything we can pray with you about or if you have questions about God, we'd love to talk with you. Please visit our contact page at okccommunitychurch.com.